Uh, if, you'd, uh, if you'd pray with me real, real quick. Uh, Father God, thank you so much for this morning, and thank you for the opportunity to, to just gather with friends and, and loved ones and, and in this church and just experience the blessing of, of worship and, and of, of your word. Um, yeah, God, just prepare our hearts for what you've got uh, for us to learn here today. Prepare us to, to really learn more about um, who you want us to be and what, are you, what you want us to do in this world. Um, and it's all, Lord, because of who you are and what you've, uh, what you've made us able to do through Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, just be, be with us today, Lord. Open our hearts and our minds uh, to what you would have us learn, um, what, we, what you would have us change, or what you would have us uh, glorify your name for in response to what you've done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, on the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., several thousand Christians from different denominations with different political affiliations and perhaps, most importantly, different races and ethnicities gathered at a convention center in the city of Memphis a mere two miles away from the very motel where King had been murdered, and held a conference to discuss the issues of racism, diversity, and justice, and unity within the Church of America and around the world. This event was a coordinated effort between several major evangelical leaders and organizations, including the Gospel Coalition and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Their goal was to create an opportunity to reflect on where Christians have been and look ahead to where we must go as we pursue racial unity in the midst of tremendous tension. So for two days, speeches were delivered and and workshops were offered and panels were questioned, and in the city of Memphis, Christians committed themselves to having reasonable, honest, and difficult conversations about what it means to love Jesus, preach the gospel, build the church, and embrace the God-given diversity of the people of Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't go to this conference, but I did come across a lot of the videos of the talks and, and a bunch of articles that talked about how it went and, and what was good and, and what was hard about, the, about what everyone was talking about. And as I watched these videos and read these articles, it occurred to me that what these Christian brothers and sisters were attempting to do during those days in Memphis is very much in line with and an application of what we see called for in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-12, through 12, which we'll be taking a look at this morning. In this passage, we'll see that the Apostle Peter calls on all believers to be committed to one another, to seek understanding, pursue peace, and preserve the unity of the church, even during the times where we might disagree with one another on matters of life and faith. The reason we need this unity, the reason we need a strong community, is because we've been called to work hard in sharing the gospel and blessing all people, even and especially those people who don't like us very much. And if we're going to do that and do it well, we need a supportive home base. We need the church. We may not share all the the differences and struggles and experiences of the Christians that gathered in Memphis that day. And we may not share the same troubles that the Christians were experiencing in the first century as they they took on hostility and persecution from, uh, from their friends and neighbors in Rome. But today's passage does give us an opportunity to honestly honestly reflect on the tensions and the disagreements that we do struggle with from both outside of our church and from within? How should we treat one another when we wrestle with our political and theological and personal disagreements? When this world looks at the church at large, or specifically when the Manhattan community looks at this church, will they see people who are committed to unity or division? Will they see people who value grace or anger? Will they see something supernaturally distinctive or just another worldly gathering of angry and bitter people. I hope and pray 
that in our church, they'll see the love of Christ reflected in all of our interactions, even in our arguments, and especially in all of our relationships. Now, we're not perfect people. Sometimes we're going to be wrong when we're absolutely sure that we're right. And sometimes we're going to be right, but have to have the patience and the grace to to listen to other people, even though that they're wrong. And sometimes we're going to be stuck in that gray middle area where we're really not sure how to move forward. And all of this is okay, as long as we can promise to one another that we will treat one another with the same respect and love that we see prescribed in Scripture and modeled by our Savior. That's why, that's what we'll be seeking to learn this morning as we continue our series on 1 Peter. Now, we've been going through 1 Peter for a number of weeks, and then we took a break to, to celebrate Easter uh, and celebrate some baptisms. And so before we dive into the, the passage this morning, I want to stop and make sure we remember one uh, key crucial uh, uh, passage early on in 1 Peter that helps us unlock all, the, all of the rest of the commands. It really helps us understand the, the attitude and the mindset that we need to have as we move forward this morning. Peter opened his letter by praising God for the new life that God has mercifully and graciously given to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Everything we're going to talk about today, the character we want to build and and the kind of work that we want to do in the world, it all comes to us as a gift of grace from God. We can't be the kind of people that we need to be all on our own. Everything we're called to do in chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, is is so against the grain of human nature that it's impossible to pursue without the mercy of God. The anchor to to all the instructions, to all the commands throughout 1 Peter, and especially what we're going to read today, is found in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. There Peter wrote, "'Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So it's important to remember this this passage and remember how much God has done for us, because our temptation is always to look at biblical commands and think, man, I I really got to be doing better. Uh, You know, God expects so much more of me. I've got to be able to to do better. But what we really want to be saying is, thank God, for he has already done better on my behalf. And now, by his grace, I can spend every day exploring the transformation that he has caused in my heart. In God's great mercy, we have new birth and a brand new life full of a living hope. So this morning, friends, what I want to do is is explore what's been done for us and how we've already been transformed and see what what we've been called to do and how we might interact with that in the name and by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our passage for this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. There Peter writes, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you might inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Be loving with one another. Be compassionate and humble. There are five fairly simple, straightforward commands that biblical scholar Karen Job describes as the qualities of Christian character 
needed to sustain the Christian community as it responds rightly to the hostility of an unbelieving society. Let me say that again. These are the qualities or the essential qualities of Christian character needed to sustain the Christian community as it responds rightly to the hostility of an unbelieving society. In other words, this passage describes the kind of people we need to be in order to get done the kind of things that we want to get done, that we've been called to do. This is the kind of character God expects of us as individuals and as a church to be learning and developing in our lives so that we can join him in his redemptive work in the world. I like the way that the message, the, the Bible that was edited by Eugene Peterson translate for, translates verse 8. He says, summing up, so on the basis of everything we've talked about, summing up, be agreeable, be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, be humble. That goes for all of you, no exceptions. Uh-oh. All of you, no exceptions. We are all, without exception, commanded to pursue this sort of character. There is not a single trait on this list that Peter says can be skipped or ignored. Be like-minded, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, and humble. That's a little daunting, right? You should, you should start to see why I, I called our attention back to chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 at the beginning of this. Because you've got to remember that we're not commanded to simply just do better. It's not, God's not wagging his finger at you or tapping his feet in heaven waiting for you to get better. But we're to remember that God has already done what, need, what needs to be done so that we can be better. On, through Christ. And so we're figuring out how to tap into that transformation. What Peter's asking us to do is really explore what Christ has done in our lives and become more Christ-like as we do. But if, if you don't remember that, if you don't remember that crucial foundation, you'll turn all this into legalism. It'll start dragging you down. And I don't want you to do that this morning. So let's take a quick look at these five essential character qualities that Peter says we all need to be working on and establishing and practicing in our lives. The first of these uh, qualities is he says we need to be like-minded. Now, that's a terribly ambiguous little phrase, isn't it? Peter lists it with no additional explanation, which leads us to believe that it was probably a word or a phrase that would have been common teaching in the first century church, and perhaps these people had already heard about it and knew, kind of in their, in their mind, already knew what that phrase meant. And a quick survey of the New Testament would reveal that like-mindedness was indeed a hallmark teaching of the early church. In fact, in John 17, Jesus himself prays for his followers that they would have a relationship as close as Jesus has with the Father and the Spirit. If you flip over to Acts 4.32, you'll see that it says all the believers in the church were of one heart and of one mind. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul too calls for unity and like-mindedness in the church. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there will be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. So an essential characteristic of the Christian life and community is that we're to strive to be like-minded. Now, I've seen other translations use the word harmonious here, and I really like that because harmonies are made up of different sounds or voices that all come together to create melodies that play the same song. And that's a great picture of what it means to be like-minded. But when we think about it that way, we want to remember that harmonies are not made by, by playing the same note. In the same way, like-mindedness isn't achieved through absolute uniformity in every single little thing. What Peter's really after here is a like-mindedness in our faith and belief in Christ. The mind that we're supposed to grow to be more like is not, not our own and not our friends. Uh, it's not our favorite pastors or writers or theologians. The mind that we want to be more like is the mind of Christ. What we want to grow to do is think more like Jesus and act more like Jesus and let what he taught really inform the way that we, we act and live in the world. 
The goal of like-mindedness is not to create uniformity or diminish diversity. Instead, we want to bring all of our diversity, our, our different ways of reading and interpreting Scripture, our different culture and traditions, our different doctrines and beliefs. We want to bring all of that and lay it at the feet of Jesus. Some things will then need to change. Some things might then need to be cut away. And some things, perhaps some surprising things, will actually end up being able to glorify God in ways that we never expected. We'll figure all of this out together as a church through our common commitment to what God has revealed in Scripture and our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, like-mindedness, of course, gets tricky because we don't always agree on, on things like theology or, or, or things that we encounter in life. And Peter, of all people, knew this. If, if you know anything about Peter's life, you'll know that he was constantly getting his theology corrected uh, throughout Scripture. And so, our, which is why he goes on to say that our commitment to like-mindedness needs to be supported by the next four character qualities in this passage, starting with, starting with sympathy. The second essential characteristic of Christian life is to be sympathetic. Now, this means the, the, the meaning of, of sympathetic, what it means to be sympathetic is that you're sensitive to the feelings and emotions of others and, and the and is important, allow, you allow that connection to help you be more understanding and patient with others even when you disagree. Having this kind of character allows you to slow down and consider the experiences and perspectives of other people. A pastor named Alistair Begg once described being sympathetic as getting under the burden of those whose loads are too heavy and sharing the joy of those whose loads are light. Getting under the burden of those whose loads are heavy and sharing the joy of those whose loads are light. Part of the Christian life is being willing to feel what others feel. Jesus laughed with people. He, he cried with people. He was willing to, to let other people kind of lead the situation and, and feel their emotions. And if Jesus was doing that, we need to be willing to do that as well. A third essential characteristic of the Christian life is the willingness to love one another. The Greek word here is Philadelphia, which means we're supposed to have a close, personal, familial kind of love. This is not about having warm, fuzzy feelings for one another all the time. This is about remaining as fiercely devoted to one another as Christ is fiercely devoted to us. He is our example. He teaches us how to love. And so our affection for one another is, is a joy in good times. It's, it's awesome when things are going well. But it's also a covenant and a promise that we fight to keep even when things are hard. And as we struggle to have like-mindedness, like-mindedness with one another, things are at times going to be hard. But nevertheless, God's expect- expectation is, is that we will continue to love one another as Jesus loves us. The fourth essential characteristic of a Christian life is to be compassionate. And the simplest definition that I know to, to give about, about what compassion is, is that it's love and action. You know you're being compassionate when you feel a little bit of somebody else's sorrow and pain, and you try to engage it in a meaningful way. And a key there is that you try to engage it in a meaningful way to them, not just to you. That, uh, that, that might mean that you're, you help them grieve. Uh, you might help them by providing some sort of assistance. It might just mean that you're there for them and that you're willing to sit down and listen to their story and maybe even offer to pray for them. When you read the Gospels, you can barely turn a page without encountering a story in which Jesus felt compassion for people. And, re- and he responded by healing the sick and encouraging the broken and forgiving those who are ashamed of their past. And as followers of Christ, we inherit his ministry. We must be kind-hearted. We must be compassionate. We must go out into the world and, and try to respond to the needs of others and be considerate 
and, and do, do so in considerate and meaningful and sacrificial ways. That's why we, we create things like a compassion fund in our church. And it's why we're so passionate about growing our care ministries. We want to get alongside people in their struggle and in their burden and help them share that burden. Finally, Peter says we must be humble. <clears throat> As followers of Christ, we cannot be arrogant or prideful or boastful or self-centered. Instead, we must freely declare our utter dependence on God and willingly surrender our status, our power, and our privilege in order to serve others well. Now, our culture doesn't regard humility as a particularly important characteristic. We're often distracted by the loudest voice or the, or the most boastful voice in the room, and we really like to be the best, and we really like it when people acknowledge when we're the best and, and reward us for all the superiority that we feel like we've earned. But the funny thing is, the church really isn't a gathering of the best of the best. It's a community of broken and bruised misfits who at some point in their life caught a glimpse of the glory of God, and from that point on, nothing else mattered. I don't need the world to think the world of me, because my life has been forever changed by the grace of God, and I've been promised that by His grace, uh, His love will continue up to abound in the hearts of those who are joyously, foolishly, and freely humble. I don't need the world to look at me and say, well done. I want God to look at me and say, well done. Be like-minded, be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, and be humble. We are all, without expectation, commanded to pursue and cultivate this kind of character. And as we grow into this kind of a person and this kind of a community, we become better followers and, and better family. Better followers of Christ because these are all Christ-like traits. Christ did all of these things perfectly. He was perfectly like-minded with the Father and the Spirit, sympathetic to our struggles, abounding in love, overwhelmingly compassionate, and so humble that he gave up heaven in order to get close to you and to me and to save us from our sins. And we become a better family because these traits bring us together and lead us to care for one another and unite us as adopted sons and daughters of the living God. So a simple question that I have for you all this morning is, if this is our standard, how are we doing? How are, how are you doing when, when you think about these traits? Did the Holy Spirit start tugging on your heart as we talked about any one of those in particular? Do you think that there is evidence of these traits in your life and in our church? Are you at peace with the people in your life group or your Bible studies? Is there a relationship with someone in this room that needs repair? Do you seek ways to serve one another? Are you aware of the needs of the people on your left or on your right? Or, and this one's sometimes even harder, are you willing to share your needs with this church so that we can better understand how we might serve you? How are we doing? And by God's grace, how might we do better? I guarantee you there are people in this, in this church, they're the pastoral staff and, and the elders and lay leaders and, and just people in this church that want to know how we can love one another better. And we don't want to hide our conflict. We don't want our disagreements to grow in our hearts and never be voiced so we can attend to, to unmet, unmet, um, uncared for wounds. The bottom line is that our character matters. The kind of people that we are is important to God. And so it should be important to us as well. Now, the reason character is so important is not only because it makes us better followers of Christ and not only because it makes us a better church community, but because it also helps us prepare for the difficult work that Peter says that we're called to in verse 9. He says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but on the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. 
So why is it so important for the church to be such a strong, supportive community? It's because all of us, individually and as a body, are called to take on the incredibly hard task of actively and intentionally loving people who do not love us. We're to actively and intentionally love people who do not always love us back. This is one of the Savior's most revolutionary, world-changing, counter-cultural teachings. We don't just love the people who love us, and we do not just avoid the people who hate us. We absorb evil and insults that are thrown at us, and in return, we bless. As followers of Jesus Christ, we must sacrifice the right of retaliation and lay it at the feet of Jesus Christ. As followers of Jesus Christ, we must sacrifice the right of retaliation and lay it at the foot of the cross. To love an enemy means to act rightly toward them according to what God says is how we act rightly. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have a deep, emotional, like Disney-like love for your enemy. That's not what Peter's asking for here. Blessing our adversaries has a lot more to do with resisting the temptation to fight back against evil with evil and viciousness of our own and instead respond with grace the way that Jesus did. When we bless our enemies, we break a cycle of evil that they have started. It may have started with them, but we're going to make it stop with us, or at least not continue through us. Now, this is a really hard thing to do, but, one of the most power, but it ends up being one of the most powerful and life-changing ways that we can share the gospel with the world. One of the most incredible examples of blessing one's enemy that I've ever seen uh, occurred earlier this year when Team USA gymnast Rachel Den Hollander was given 40 minutes uh, in a courtroom to speak to Larry Nasser, a man who had been found guilty of abusing her um, and, and many other young women when she was 16 years old. What Rachel chose to share with her abuser that day is, is incredible. I honestly don't know that I could have had the strength of faith or the fortitude to, to share and give the words that she gave while in that courtroom. And the entire thing is incredible. If you've never taken time to listen to it, I encourage you, if you just Google her name or, or, or look it up, it's, it's still all over the internet. Um, it's worth your time. It's a hard thing to listen to. What she says she went through um, is incredibly uh, heartbreaking and heart-wrenching. Um, but while, while giving this testimony in that courtroom to the man that had abused her, she, she was able to say these, these words. I'm just going to quote just a little bit of, of her testimony. And it's an incredibly powerful demonstration of how you might be able to love someone who's hurt you. So as she addressed her abuser, as she said, as she talked to Larry Nasser, she said these, these words. In our early hearings, you, and she's talking to, to, to Nasser, in our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom, and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on, the base, on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know that the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for sin that he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that's what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where there should be none found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience the true repentance and true forgiveness from God which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. What Rachel did that day was brave and righteous and Christ-like. She took on the character of verse 8 and the calling of verse 9 and offered grace to a man who absolutely did not deserve it. 
Now, I want to make it clear that I am not saying that all victims of abuse have to find a way to do what Rachel did in the way that she did it. It took her years to gather the, the kind of strength to, to deliver that message in the courtroom. But I, I do think that we need to be open to the ways that God might ask us to bless and forgive those who have hurt us and remain committed to following him, even into doing things that seem impossible on our own. With God, such things are possible. And in verse 9, we see that this command to love others combines with a promise that when we do that, we'll also encounter the blessings that God intends for us to receive. Now, I need everyone to be sure to listen to this next part because it's important. Peter is not advocating for a system of works-based righteousness. He is not saying you put in this much blessing and you get this much blessing in return. That's not what Peter's trying to teach here. What he's saying here is that we don't earn the blessing of God, but instead it's given as a gift. That's why Peter calls it an inheritance. You inherit something that somebody chooses to give to you, but you've got to be around to receive it. You've got to be able to receive what's given to you. In the parable of the prodigal son, the younger brother demands his inheritance and wastes it on worldly pleasures. And when he finally decides to return home, his plan is to go and work for the father. He, he, he says, I'll go home and I'll work hard and I'll, I'll be a servant in my father's house and I'll obtain at least that much blessing back from him. But when he re- returns home, he finds that his father will not stand for that plan at all. Instead, he welcomes the son back and in, back into his presence and restores him to the family and once again to an inheritance that he didn't earn. That's the kind of thing Peter is talking about here. What we receive from God is a free gift simply given because we are his sons and his daughters. We didn't earn that. He gives it to us freely. God loves you and he blesses you with gifts both temporal and eternal. In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. The love of Christ has brought you into a new birth, into a new life, into a living hope, and into an unending inheritance. So live like it. Be like-minded, be sympathetic, be loving and compassionate and humble. Bless those who who curse you. That's the life that we've been called to. In verses 10 through 12, Peter actually supports his argument by applying scripture. He's actually quoting Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16 here. And in verse 10, he illustrates what it means to be like-minded, sympathetic and loving and compassionate and humble. It means keeping our tongues from evil and our lips from deceit. And in this day and age, this also means keeping our tweets civil and our Facebook posts respectful. People with Christian character don't delight in choosing sarcasm over sincerity or in seeking to be right at the expense of being kind. Instead, they desire to be better followers of Christ and build a better family in the church and be a better witness to the world through love. Verse 11 defines what it means to bless those who curse you. He says, turn from evil, do good, pursue peace. These are all active things. It's not just avoidance. You actually have to engage in this process. Remember that, remember that what it really truly means to love God is not only not just not do evil, but also bless them directly. Verse 12 talks about the blessings we receive, the promise of the Lord watching over us, listening to our prayers, and securing what we need now and forevermore. But you've got to remember that 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-12 through 12 gives us a lot to think about and a lot to do, but you can't make the mistake of thinking that you're going to do this all on your own. Living in harmony with one another and loving our enemies is impossible if our model is anyone other than Jesus Christ. He is the only one who has ever done this perfectly, and he is the only one who can give us the strength and the ability to get close to doing this at all. Love one another well, and share the love of God with those who do not love you back. This is what we've been called to do by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you'd please pray with me.
Father God, this is a incredible um, and daunting and humbling list to, to look at, Lord. But the character that we see there, if we truly reflect on it, we know that, that good gifts would flow from it and that goodness would be produced not only in our life but in the lives of the people around us. So, Father, I, I thank you today for the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made that these character traits could be a reality in our lives. And I submit to you for the work that we're called to do in blessing others, even those who don't like us very much. Um, Lord, give us the strength and the courage and the ability to do those things in your name and in this world that desperately needs the witness of the love of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the power of your word today, Lord. And in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.